Thanks, Tim. Uh, it'd be great to keep that section of the Bible, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, open. Uh, that'd be really, really helpful for us. Uh, we're going to be camping out there this morning. And look, there's a sense in which that reading's pretty heavy, isn't it? Anyone paying attention? Uh, so it's right, it's always right for us to say this is the word of the Lord and then to say, some of you say that, yep. Um, we, we, we want to say thanks be to God because his good word will challenge us and it will encourage us. And we wanted to do both those things this morning, so I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are present with us this morning. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, you are here. And so, Father, we thank you that your word is the sword of your spirit. And so we pray that he might uh, cut and challenge where he needs to. We thank you also, Father, that he is a counsellor and a comforter. And so, Father, we pray that he might comfort and bind up and heal where that's required as well. Father, be at work here this morning as we get into your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Has anyone here seen uh, Groundhog Day? Groundhog Day? Very good. Uh, wouldn't it be great to not deal with repetition? Right? Some, sometimes we're in that, in that stage of life where it just goes over and over and over again. Wouldn't it be great not to deal with repetition? Wouldn't it be great not to deal with repetition? It's a little joke. I'm glad some of you are laughing. That's fantastic. Uh, it would be great, wouldn't it? It would be great to be free of some of the repetitious things that just make it hard for us. I mean, who doesn't want to stop making lunches, mowing the lawn? Actually, I'd like to have some lawn grow so I could mow it, but to be honest. Uh, making beds, sitting in traffic for a commute, saying sorry. Who'd like to be done with saying sorry? Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to again and again offer sacrifices to God? We don't know that, do we? we? We don't have that experience. Sacrifices being offered again and again to God. And yet we heard that in the reading here from Hebrews chapter 10. So why sacrifice? Why, why did they have sacrifices in the first place to be offered again and again repetitiously? Well, the answer, this is our overview of the Bible. If, you, if you're new with us and you haven't seen this before, this is my pictorial overview of the Bible. This is the Old Testament here from Genesis, creation, all the way through to Jesus' birth and death, and then up to the new creation at the end in, in Revelation. The bit we're going to look at uh, where sacrifices are found is in the book of Leviticus uh, in the Old Testament. And we need sacrifices because of sin. We need sacrifices because of sin. Why? Well, God says that there's a punishment for sin. In fact, if we talk about something that we do repetitiously, I don't have to know very much about you at all. In fact, I don't need to have ever met you before, but what I can tell you is you sin repeatedly. Don't you, church? Good. And those of you who are sitting there going, I don't. Congratulations, you just sinned. So wonderful. That was your first one. So that's really good, isn't it? But here's the thing. We, we can laugh and that's right. However, our sin's a serious business. Our sin is rejecting the rightful rule of the God who is there and placing a little crown in our hearts where we say, God, I've got this. I'm, I'm running my life my own way. And our sinful rebellion has a cost. God says the punishment for sin is what? Death. Death is the punishment for sin because rebels can't live in rebellion against the king forever. And so we sin. The punishment is death and sacrifice was the Old Testament solution. Because what it meant was we would take 
uh, a bull or a goat or a ram. And what we would do is we'd take a perfect animal. Death needs to be paid for sin. And what, what would happen is sin would be confessed on the animal, over the animal, and then it would die in your place. Death of that one in your place was the reason for sacrifice. And so we see in Leviticus, uh, Aaron, who's the, the first priest, gets told about these sacrifices. In chapter 16, we read, Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Aaron had a problem. He had sinned. Even though he was the priest of all of Israel, he had a personal problem. He had a personal problem with sin. And a bull needed to die for his sin. But then it says a little bit later, Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen as a lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. What was basically going to happen is there was a personal sin, but there was also a national sin. And the idea of the scapegoat was to bear away the sin of the nation. And so sacrifice, sacrifice was because of sin and substitution is how sinners could be allowed to live. There are a number of things about sacrifices. There are a variety of sacrifices. Here's some common threads. Number one, they were personal. It was a personal cost to offer a sacrifice. You couldn't just go, I'd like to offer a sacrifice. And someone go, cool, I've got a lamb. You can kill mine. Not how it worked. So what you had to do is you had to select a lamb. And not just any lamb, but your best lamb. The best that you have. Which sounds crazy, right? And then kill that in place of yourself. Sacrifice was always at personal cost. There was a posture of repentance. And what I mean by that, not just everybody was kneeling down, but the only people who offer sacrifices are people who know that they've sinned and who want to get right with God. So you have to be repentant to turn to God and offer a sacrifice. I'm sure there are plenty of sinful people who didn't, right? So you have to have a posture of repentance. Thirdly, it needs priestly participation. So Funnily enough, you could rock up with Lammy, right? You could rock up with Lammy and, and say, hey God, I'm going to offer a sacrifice now and I'm just going to get into it. But guess what? You weren't allowed to. You had to come to the priest, the one who stood between you and God. And the priest would prepare the sacrifice and offer it on your behalf. The priest was the one who would help you meet with God. And so priestly participation was part of the sacrifice. Then fourthly, this is really interesting. There's a, there's a thing called peaceful practice. We, I, I've called it that, mostly because I like the peas, but, but, but here, bear, bear with me. So you cut up the lamb, wonderful, and part of it gets burnt. Actually, the good bit gets burnt. The fat gets burnt up. It's called an aroma pleasing to God. So if you reckon that you like the smell of a barbecue, congratulations, that's a holy thing. Isn't that great? God has that fat portion go up to him as a holy aroma, pleasing to God. That's what it literally says in the scriptures, right? But you know what happens with the rest of the lamb? Some of it goes to the priest, which keeps them fed, and some of it goes back to you. And so part of offering your sacrifice was you get to eat a meal in the temple with the lamb that you brought. And so there's a real sense in which God is not your enemy anymore. You can eat peacefully in his presence and enjoy the fruit of the sacrifice. Now, I actually think that's really cool and unexpected. It doesn't just disappear, but you participate in the the fruit of your sacrifice. But here's the fifth thing that's actually really sad. There's a high probability of repetition. 
We'll see you again really soon because you're going to sin again soon. And so there was a probability of repetition and very quickly. So we see at the start of Hebrews chapter 10, which is dealing with this whole sacrificial system, it says in uh, chapter 10, verse 1, if you have a look, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is really striking, isn't it? This is really striking. And so what it tells us is that the Old Testament sets us up to understand Jesus. So if Jesus just, we can imagine a different scenario. Jesus beams down from heaven and goes, right, better put me up on the cross. And he dies on the cross and goes, there we go, we're all done. Everyone goes, what just happened? They wouldn't know the burden of their sin. And it was great to hear Daniel talking about the weight of the law on his shoulders. We know what that feels like. But the Old Testament sets us up and says there can be a substitute. Something can stand in your place. The problem is we need to do it again and again and again. And so the law was a shadow pointing us forward to the good things to come. And it was also an annual reminder. You had to trip over the fact that you sinned and you needed to pay the price. So the law set us up expecting to have to do it again and failing repeatedly. For Moses' apprentices, i.e. people who lived in the Old Testament, I suspect their experience of going to the temple was far more like going to the butchers and having a barbie than we would expect. Right? We expect that in the Old Testament it's just like coming to church for us, right? But it wasn't. It wasn't like that. And so there was meat and barbecue. And the people of God, if you're an apprentice to, to Moses, had frequent flyer points accruing at the temple. But they didn't. But here's the thing. They had to go there regularly, again and again and again and again, because those sacrifices never finished sin. In the Old Testament, apprentices to Moses were obedient and busy, but utterly unable to solve sin. Utterly unable to solve sin. So what happens? How do you get out of that loop? Why don't we have a Barbie on every week here at church? Well, here's the reason. Have a look with me from verse 11. We're going to read 11 and 12. Day after day, the writer to the Hebrews says, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, listen to this. But, but when this priest, talking about Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now this is actually truly extraordinary stuff. Do you remember a little bit earlier in this series, we heard John the Baptist say that Jesus was the Lamb of God. Do you remember that? And we know that Jesus can be called the Lamb of God because they knew about lambs that would be a sacrifice. So John looks at Jesus and says, this man is the perfect Lamb of God. How could he be? They had to bring a perfect lamb, one without blemish. So you couldn't bring your scungy lamb, right? I'm going to kill a lamb today. Well, three-legger, here you go. 
It's not like that. The best had to be brought without any blemish. How is Jesus the perfect sacrifice? Well, he's the lamb without blemish because Jesus never, ever, he never sinned. And so he never deserved to die. He's the perfect lamb of God. And we know, it says here in an extraordinary way, have a look at verse 12, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. See, Jesus is also the priest who offers the sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice and he's the priest who offers the sacrifice. The one who makes atonement. Do you guys know the word atonement? The, the idea is it's, uh, it's about restoring relationship and there's a really good little hook for it. at atonement. At one minute, restoring, putting everybody at one together again. At one minute, atonement, there you go. So Jesus is the lamb. He's also the priest. And we know that he was the sufficient sacrifice. How do I know that? Because it says what his posture is now. Have, have a look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, day after day, every priest stands. And then it says here, after he'd offered... For all time, one sacrifice for sins, he. What does it say in verse 12, church? He sat down. And so the huge theological point for you today is Jesus sat down. Wow. How exciting is that, right? You're sitting down. What is it? Well, why is it exciting that Jesus sat down? Well, the priests in the Old Testament had to stand to do their duty again and again and again. They were always standing. Jesus could sit down after he offered his sacrifice because it's all done. It is finished. That's what Jesus' cry is from the cross. Do you remember? It is finished. Why can he sit down? Why is that so, uh, so significant? Because his sacrifice was sufficient. His sacrifice was sufficient. You know, there's somebody who would... Put a burden on your shoulders. And it was, again, D Daniel's saying that the, the weight of the law makes us feel guilty. Do you know who else makes us feel guilty? The devil loves to tell you that you've fallen short of God's standard. And he loves to accuse you and say, You have messed up again. How could you do that? There is no forgiveness for you for that. And I want to tell you this morning that the time for those accusations has expired. If you're a Christian here today, the time for those accusations of Satan has expired. It's done. Why? Have a look with me at verse 14. Have a look with me at verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Let me just read it one more time. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What, what does that mean? Made perfect. Well, I want to give you a big word this morning. Justification. Justification. Just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. Justification. What does it say? Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. What does this tell us? You and I can be made perfect before God. And you go, ask my wife. It hasn't happened yet. True. However, our status before God, God says, I will remember their lawless acts no more. Now, whether God has a little memory blank on your sin 
I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's right. But what it means in practice is, the record of your sin will never be counted against you again. The record of your sin will never be counted against you again. That's what justification means. Because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice in your place. It's done. You're perfect before God. But I did mention before about, you know, my wife knows otherwise in terms of my daily living. So, well, let me go to the second sign up there, the roadworks one, right? So, so uh, we're always a work in progress. <laughs> and so are the roads around here all the time, forever. Always cutting a little bit out, putting some more in. What, what's going on there? Do, do you see what it says there? We've been made perfect and he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What's being made holy? What's that about? This is the second big word for today, sanctification. The process of being made holy. What's our status like before God? Perfect. God says, you are forgiven. And he says, I don't leave you how I found you. The Holy Spirit will transform you more and more to be like Jesus. See, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, what do you think the Holy Spirit wants to do? He wants to make you more... You guys are good. Okay. He wants to make you more holy. So sanctification is this ongoing work. And so this is the covenant I will make with them, it says in verse 16. After that time, says the Lord, I'll put my laws in their minds and I'll write them on their hearts. God gives us a transformed mind. He gives us a heart of flesh. He puts his spirit in us so that you and I can be doing a better job of pursuing God in holiness than we've ever done before. And you go, man, but I I stuffed up this week, right? I stuffed up just this week. And he says, get up, my son and daughter. I love you. You are utterly forgiven. Strive for holiness, not so that you can be found forgiven, but so you can be more and more like my son. So Jesus' apprentices, what I want to ask you this morning is, do you believe this? Do you believe these two things? He is made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you believe this? And if you do, then I want to ask you, do you recall this? When the evil one is whispering in your ear, do you remember? Do you remember this great truth? My posture before God, I'm utterly forgiven. It has been done. Let let me tell you just briefly, I I have said this before, but I I want to say it again because I think it's really important. There is a difference between conviction, which is what God does, and condemnation, which is what Satan does. Let me tell you the difference. God will convict you of your sin. And when you feel bad about your sin, guess what? Sometimes we should. God will do that by his Holy Spirit. You'll know it's conviction because it'll lead you towards the cross. God, I stuffed up again. Please forgive me. Conviction leads us towards the cross. Condemnation. Condemnation is full of shame and it draws us away from God. It wants, it wants us to hide in the shadows. It says, I couldn't come to church today because I felt so unworthy. I want you to know today that God who sent his son to pay the price for your sin never wants you to feel condemned. If the weight of your sin is taking you away from God, whose voice is it? It's the evil ones. It's his voice that will tell you God could never forgive that. He will never forgive that. That is not true of any sin you and I have committed. They are paid for perfectly on the cross. So when you feel the weight of condemnation, 
throw it back in the devil's face and by faith walk towards the cross. God, I feel utterly unworthy. I feel worthless, but your word tells me I'm forgiven. Brothers and sisters, know this truth. Our theology should transform our experience. Don't let how you feel drive your status before God because it's not how it works. You are fully forgiven and welcome in the presence of your heavenly Father. Well, the presence of our heavenly Father is holy ground, and this is a, a, a well, it's a ground. Does anyone know what ground it is? SCG, okay. Well, sometimes if you decide that you'd like to go onto the SCG uh, in the middle of a game, um, you'll be told that you can't. Uh, does anyone know what happens if you go? If you just say, "I'm going to boldly walk onto the ground of the SCG while they're praying, playing a game," what happens to you? Security will come. There's a $5,500 fine and a lifetime ban. So if you presumptuously walk into the holy presence of the SCG, guess what? Someone will crash tackle you. They'll throw you outside. You will be banned from ever coming back and it will cost you money. You can't presumptuously go on to the SCG. However, some days, some games, when the caretakers say, you're welcome, guess what? You can go out and play on the SCG. Has anyone done that? It's amazing, right? It's here, but, but the idea is sometimes the gates are open. Sometimes it's the right time and you're welcome. Keep that in mind as we have a look at this next section in Hebrews. We're going to read from verse, uh, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You are welcome in the presence of God. Not by what you have done, but by Jesus. You have confidence. Jesus' apprentices have confidence to enter the presence of God because they have assurance that there is a high priest who sits at the right hand of God who says, that's my one. They are paid for. That's my one. They are paid for. And so guys, this is a beautiful truth. Christians are people at peace with God. Christians are people at peace with God. They're welcome in his presence. Now I want you to see what impact that welcome and that confidence has. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, I'm at verse 20, by a new and living way opened through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having a heart spring to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see the three let us's here? Let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we have. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. See, Jesus' apprentices today, 
let us draw near to God. What I want you to do is get familiar with God. You can know him as a friend. Not just do stuff for him. Not just turn up in a building where he's worshipped. You can know him. Draw near to him. Let us draw near to him. The second let us. Let us hold unswervingly to the, to the, to the truth that we have. Guys, I'd love you to marvel at the scriptures. I want you to fall in love with them. See, how can I hold unswervingly to the truth that I profess? Number one, if I don't profess it. And number two, if I don't know anything about it. You've got to love it and cherish it and treasure it. That's how you hold unswervingly to it. Let us hold unswervingly. And the third let us is let us spur one another on to love and good deeds. See, here's the thing. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Here's the first thing that's hard about that. How am I going to spur you on? How am I going to consider how to spur you on if I never think about you? If the whole church experience for you happens for an hour and a half on a Sunday with people whose names you don't know yet, how am I going to consider how to encourage you to follow Jesus? It's going to be tough, right? So how do we fulfill this? First of all, we have to know each other. Secondly, when I think of you through the week, instead of going, oh, I remember Ian. Oh, that's good. Now I'm going to remember something else. I'm going to think of something else. Oh, look, a tweet, uh, whatever. A bird, literally, a little tweety bird. Um, Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Once I think of Ian, I thought of Ian. Why don't I then do something about it? We have these extraordinary communication tools. When I think of Ian, I just go, hey, bro, praying for you. Hope you're doing all right. Send. You can do something right then. Why wait? Consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Consider it, think about it, and do it. Can I just say, you can only fulfill this commanding community. You know, you hear people say, I don't need to go to church. I can be a Christian without going to church. Now, this is always missing the mark because you guys are in church, right? But you know someone who's not here today who says, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian, right? Don't you? Well, here's the thing. I will ask them, how do you encourage one another when you don't have a one another? This wonderful, messy thing that's our church family is how you fulfill that command. You have to be in community to encourage one another. So how might we live this out? How might we live this out? I want to draw a graph for you this morning. Imagine this church. Bear with me. It's going to be all right. Uh, what we've got, what we've got here is big gatherings, small gatherings, low intimacy, high intimacy. And what I want to suggest to you is when you've got a really big gathering, it's hard to be really intimate. When you've got a tiny gathering, it's easier to be intimate. Does that make sense? So the smaller the gathering, the more the intimacy, the more actual fellowship that, that takes place. All right. Well, what are the places that we gather as a church? Well, we, we gather in the auditorium. Congratulations, you're in it. We gather in lounge rooms. That's our life groups. You can gather around a coffee table. You can gather with God in a chair. Let, let me just think about those four things for a second. In the auditorium, you get together with 50 to 150 people on a Sunday. Fantastic, right? That's a community-sized group. When you come to a life group, you've got a group that's, say, 6 to 20. That's a family-sized group. Okay, that, that's our life groups. And then you guys hopefully are meeting with God one-on-one in a chair on your own, right? It's you and God where you do your, your devotion, where you read the scriptures and you pray. 
I think there's actually a missing category here in our gathering as a church. This coffee table size group, three to four people, that's kind of more a friendship level. And I'm going to call that a prayer square. Okay, If it's only three, it's a prayer triangle. That doesn't work really well. doesn't rhyme with prayer. And we think that, and we think that four is probably better than, than three. Anyway, so prayer square. Let me tell you a little bit about that. What is a prayer square? Well, a, a prayer square is beta churchware, right? We haven't tried this here yet. We're going to try running this and see what happens, right? It's going to be opt-in. So you're going to be able to say, hey, I'd actually like to be part of a prayer square this year. I think I would like to be able to relate to some people. Um, it's going to be choose your own adventure on meetings and times. How often do you want to meet? Where you want to meet? All up to you. It's going to be structured for inclusion. So we won't just say, hey, guys, find some friends, close in a little circle. We're going to say, we're going to put you together so that we can broaden our fellowship. Some of those will be on inside of a life group. Some of you can't get to a life group. We'd love to join you up with some who are. It's going to be organized for inclusion. And it's going to be a forum for enduring. See, as a church, we're trying to be faithful, adventurous, compassionate, and enduring. We want to help you be an apprentice to Jesus until the day we see him come back again. Our enduring value has some questions that we ask one another. We say, where are you weak and in danger of falling? Where are you weak and in danger of falling? And when I ask that question here, you all go, I'm not in any danger of falling. Because the intimacy of this setting here doesn't work. I can't ask you, hey guys, I won't pick anybody out, right? But I won't say, I'll, I'll point to an empty seat. Hey you, where are you weak and in danger of falling? Who is going to answer that question, right? Nobody. It's even hard to answer that question in a life group. But we want to ask you, who knows you well enough to, answer, to ask this question? Because somewhere, you're weak. I'm weak. Who knows that about you? Where are you weak and in danger of falling? Who knows you well enough to ask that question? Who are you strengthening to run the race? I want to be part of a church where people are looking out for each other. Yeah? Where someone's able to say, I'm having a terrible day today, please pray. And some of your life groups might work that way, that's great. But if you've got two or three others and you can just go, here's my little prayer SOS. You know what I'm talking about? Wouldn't it be great to know someone has your back? That, that's what this is about. And so we're trying to find a place which is high on intimacy, a smaller group size that enables us to do something as a church that we haven't been able to do before. So how do we get practical? Well, I'd love you to fill in one of these forms. You'll, you'll find them on the back table, okay? And in the form, you can say, hey, I, I, that's, that's my service. I, I'm going to make this my home service. You go, why do I need to say it's a home service? I've got three choices on a Sunday. Depending on how busy I am, I can come in any one. No problems. Love having you at church. When you have a home service, you've got a better chance of feeling connected and feeling that someone will miss you. Just works that way. Pick a home service. Secondly, we'd love you to let us know if you can make a life group. They're a great cornerstone to our church. And there's options here. There's men's ones, women's ones, combined ones, different days of the week. Let us know. And there's a little box there, a little yellow box that says prayer square. I'd like to join the experiment. Tick the yellow box. We're going to figure it out. And there'll be heaps of forgiveness required, right? Because we're going to work it out. But it'll be intimate enough to be able to... Anyway, you'll get it. It'll be great. All right, what are we doing, church? 
Well, I want to say to you, we don't need to keep offering animals. And you might be really thankful for that. No animals to sacrifice. Church, what do you think of that? Fantastic. And what if I tell you that what you might need to sacrifice is the best of your time? Church, we're going to be next year about growing and maturing apprentices. I want to share this story. I'm going to go over time, but I've just got to get it off my heart. Sometimes I feel really burdened talking about this stuff because I figure our world is going the opposite direction so hard. What am I going to do? I'm going to stand up in front of you today and I'm going to say, Church, why don't you see if you can make time for more relationship that's going to inconvenience you? How do I feel asking that of you? The world is running a million miles the other day. I was talking to a guy after school the other day. He's got two kids, uh, year four and year two. These kids are doing five nights a week of soccer practice. And it's the off season. Now guys, some of you are doing that and that's okay. It's not the end of the world. I don't need to make you feel bad. I just want to exhort you that when we say, I couldn't possibly fit prayer with some other brothers and sisters into my life, I just want to say to you, church, in all honesty, that's rubbish. It just is. We fit extraordinary things into our lives if we want to. And I'm this weird, funny bloke up the front of the church where you come to, and he says, I want more. I don't want it. I want you to run the race with Jesus until you see him face to face, and the world will destroy us, guys. When we give up meeting together, that's how it works. It is hungry for you. And so church, what I want to ask you is, would you consider how Jesus fits in? It was incredibly costly to bring your best lamb and sacrifice it. We don't need to do that. You're in right standing before God. What would you offer him in thanks? Because you want to meet him face to face. What I want us to be, church, is apprentices to Jesus. And that's what I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, you're a good God. In an extraordinary way, you've forgiven us in your Son. God, there's nothing left to do. And yet you're still working on us. Father, we long for the day we'll see you face to face. We want to see the people around us this morning standing with us on that final day. When we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and we enter into our rest for all eternity. Father, before that day, the enemy and the world will assault us. And we pray that you might help us to encourage one another and spur one another on all the more as we see the day approaching. Amen. I'm going to invite Daniel back up.